overview of the two books to help us kind of get a big picture of where we will be going. But growing up, as I watched movies, a lot of Disney classics, I was given a version of history that showed the U.S. to be the moral nation in the world. We'd stood up for liberty and justice in the revolution. We had fought a civil war to end slavery. We achieved a manifest destiny. We had achieved our manifest destiny of a great land from sea to shining sea. And all the while, doing this against all the horrific brutalities of the Indians who lived here. It was an overly rose-colored glasses view of history. In the 1980s, that version of history began to be replaced by a different one. The U.S., we are told, from its very founding had been a nation ruled by oppressors. The freedoms proclaimed by the Declaration of Independence and the other founding documents were really a ruse, a fancy language for those who were in power to oppress others. Yes, we ended slavery officially, but oppression is really just as bad today as it's ever been. We massacred the innocent Native Americans, stole their land, and lied repeatedly to them. If the prior version of history was rose-colored glasses, this would be called light-blocking glasses. Rather than everything being great, everything is now horrible. Nothing the U.S. has ever done is wonderful. Well, which history is correct? Well, depending on how you answer that question, will depend how you think of a lot of things in the U.S. today. And my goal is not to answer those questions this morning, not the point, but rather to dive in the important discussion of an accurate reading of history. What comes to mind when you hear the word history? Is it boring facts and dates that some coach made you learn as you went to school? Is it mainly about power and control for, really, only the winners, right, history? Is it a needed discipline so we don't make the mistakes of the past? What is history? Well, whatever your view of history, the Bible is very clear. We need to remember our history. I have a Bible software program, and this week I typed in the word remember. And by my study, there are 38 times in the Old Testament that God tells Israel to remember what he has done. 31 times the people in the Old Testament cry to God and say, will you remember, remember their faithfulness or remember his promises? In fact, it's Israel's bad memory that often leads them to problems. When they're moaning and groaning, oh, we wish it was so wonderful back when we were in Egypt, when we were enslaved. But they forget that part. Their bad memory makes them long for things that weren't so wonderful. In the New Testament, there are at least 18 times where Jesus calls us to remember and Jesus calls his disciples specifically to remember his care for them. He says, remember when I fed the 4,000? Or he says, remember the Old Testament story of Lot? Or he tells them, remember my words when I leave you. So we have to remember the past. To know God, we have to remember what he has said and what he has done. And yet you can't remember what you don't know. So this morning, we're going to give this overview of the book of First and Second Kings. And as we go, we're going to also deal with three important questions. Can we really trust biblical history? What should we make of all the really weird stuff in these books? And third, how do we even apply all this stuff to today? 
Now, for the sake of convenience of modern readers, we have what is called First and Second Kings, but originally this was just Kings. There was no First and Second Kings. It was one book. In this grand book, now books, we can see three major movements. If you have an outline on your bulletin, if I didn't steal yours like I did from Brian, um, you'll see on the back three movements of what we'll see first in First Kings 1 through 10. There's kind of this question, have all of God's promises been fulfilled? Then in 1 Kings 11 all the way to 2 Kings 17, we see this mostly horrible decline of God's people. But then at the end, there's a question in chapter 17 to the end of 2 Kings. Have all of God's promises end to his people? Are there any more promises? Well, this all begins in 1 Kings chapter 1. It says, now King David was old and advanced in years. So in the very beginning, we're given a history fact. Well, who is this king named David? Well, just to refresh our memories, remember, David is the second king of Israel. The first king, the one who came before him, was King Saul. And Israel only had him as the first king because they had said to God, we want a king like all the other nations. And so God had given them King Saul. Before that, they had tribal leaders called judges who would make decisions, rule over them. And the worship was led by the Levitical priest who had been instructed through Moses by God on how they should worship. Moses, if you remember, was the one who God had raised up to lead Israel out of a 400-year slavery in Egypt. And so when we get here to First and Second Kings, we're hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're after the conquest of the land in Joshua. We're after King Saul and King David. And we are now dealing with what will happen after King David, that he is old and he is needing to transition power. And then as we go through these books, it'll be about 400 years from the beginning of Kings to the end when all of them will be in captivity in Babylon. But we see this transfer of power, if you flip over to 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 through 34. And this morning we're going to be looking at lots of sections of verses in these. So keep your Bible in front of you this time. 1 Kings chapter 1, 32 through 34. There it says, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoda. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. When we look at these verses in greater depth, we'll see before this, David had to do this because another son had attempted to steal the throne as David was old and a weakened condition. But the throne does pass to Solomon, and Solomon's reign will be the high watermark for Israel. They will have their greatest power. They will have the most peace and the greatest world prominence through the reign of Solomon. We can see why this all begins in chapter 3. Turn to chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Solomon's godly character leads to all this blessing. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, it says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, 
Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was the great high places. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this great people. Just imagine this. You are given one request. You can have anything you want. Now many of us would choose possessions or power or maybe a different body or greater strength or whatever it could be, but Solomon asked for wisdom. Make me wise so I can rule this people. And because he asked for wisdom, and not for might, and not for possessions. God gave him those other things. And chapters 4 through 9 of 1 Kings then walk through all of the wisdom and power and possessions that Solomon was given. This is even seen by this foreign ruler, the queen of Sheba, coming and talking to him and seeing everything. Flip over to chapter 10, because there we see her description of what it was like to be in Solomon's kingdom. In 1 Kings 10, beginning in verse 6, it says, And she, the queen of Sheba, said to the king, The report that I heard in my own land of you and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of it was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity far surpass the report that I have heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So here Solomon is beyond any description that could be given. To come is to go, wow, it's even greater than I had heard. And why? Because of his godly character. It doesn't just affect him. It overflows and is a blessing to others. His servants, his whole nation, she says, are blessed because you are the ruler. And then chapter 10 goes on and tells even more of his wealth. Look at chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. And then we'll look at the beginning of verse 27. Chapter 10, verse 23. Then King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Jump to verse 27. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. If you've been reading through the Bible, it appears on many levels that perhaps all of God's promises 
have been fulfilled. They're coming true. Let's go back. Genesis 3, what's the curse? That God's presence is removed from man. But what did Solomon do? Well, his father David had set up for him to build the temple, and God's presence comes to Jerusalem. Has that curse been removed through the promise, through Solomon building? Well, in Genesis 12, God had promised Abraham, through you all the nations will be blessed. Solomon here is a blessing to his nation, and people are coming to his nation to be blessed. Has the Abrahamic promise been fulfilled? God had promised King David that when you have a future son, he will make it so there is peace, there's prosperity, there will be no fighting in the land. There's no fighting in the land. Have all of God's promises come true? Is everything been fulfilled through King Solomon? Well, sadly, we'll see that's not the case, but I want to pause and ask can we even trust this? And can we even trust the history in the Bible? You know, isn't this the report of the Israelites? Of course they're going to say, yes, we were the world's greatest nation. Everyone looked to us. We're so wonderful. Who doesn't want everyone to believe that? And we have to admit, that could be true. They could have made all this up. People make up reports of themselves all the time. And it is true that the nations around them very much love to tell of their defeats and their victories. However, there's a major difference between the history that Israel gives and the history that the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians give. And that is, the Israelites also include not just their victories, but their defeats. They don't just tell the good times, they're honest and tell the bad times as well. And yet while that is true, many, and I put in quote, biblical scholars say things such as, the Old Testament is essentially useless for the historian's purpose. It's nothing more than a holy book that tells stories. Now I'll back up and say issues like this are challenging for me to know whether I should bring them up. If you ever have the opportunity to teach or preach the Bible, one of the most important questions you need to ask is, who am I talking to? If you're speaking to five-year-olds, you probably don't need to talk to them about how to be a godly parent. If you go to a nursing home, you probably don't need to talk to them about how a child needs to obey their parents. Who your audience is determines what you should say. And as I've talked with you, I'm not sure that any of you, thankfully, are wrestling with, can I really trust the Bible? Is it historical? You know, you are not wrestling with this directly, but the reality is many of us come up against these issues as we go through life. In a month and a half or so, we'll have Christmas. A few months after, we'll have Easter. And often at that time of the year, the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, or something else, will have a series in which they discuss the historical Jesus. They will present this idea that, well, Yes, there's this Jesus discussed about here in the Bible, but then that's what they call the Jesus of faith. There's really this historical Jesus which has little to do, they say, with these people, with Jesus in scriptures. That, they claim, is just what the disciples wanted to believe about 
Jesus, not the real historical Jesus. And that's one of the reasons I provided in the back these copies. Well, can we really trust the Gospels? I believe we can. There's good evidence for it. And yet, that happens even here in the Old Testament. We're told, well, yes, there's the Israel of history, in which you can only know about them through archaeology and other studies. And then there's the Israel of faith, what the Bible records. And those who make these claims might say things like, this is essentially useless for historical purposes. Now, again, for most of you, this is probably not a pressing concern. You're concerned about, how do I keep my sanity this week with my children? How am I going to make it through Thanksgiving? Can I count all the ceiling tiles in here before Pastor Jeremy finishes this week? That's what you're wondering. I was a kid once. I sat there. I counted different things in my church. But you're wondering anything but this. Why is he talking about this? Well, because we bump up against this. And maybe one day you'll go to university and the professor will say, well, pff, you can't trust that. That's just people who believed in those things. And so I want you to realize there are good reasons. Christians do not just hear these facts and bury their heads in the sand and go, well, we want to believe it. It's good for us. So it doesn't really matter. No, there are good reasons, historical reasons, to say what those historians are saying is wrong. And let me just give two brief reasons or two flaws with their methodology and then give uh, an example of the Bible's histor historicity and we'll go on. So the first flaw with these skeptical scholars is that their starting assumption is you can't trust past historians because they're biased. We, we can't trust these historians, whoever wrote Kings, because they're biased. The valid historian, we're told, is neutral. They're uninvolved, they're unbiased, and they evaluate history from this neutral position in the sky. Thus, since these people in the Bible were making claims, they're not just reporting facts, they must be biased and unreliable. And yet, in response, we have to ask, are the historians who are saying that, are they unbiased? Well, no, they're very much trying to say the Bible's not true. They are completely biased, just like other historians are. They're not completely uninvolved in the process. Thus, we should realize every person is biased. Now, that's not to discount all historical claims, but it's to say we have to recognize bias, but that doesn't remove their validity completely. And closely tied to this is a second flaw, and that is their adherence to what is called the verification principle. Let me explain what that means. So to verify something is to prove it's true. Well, they come to the Bible with the verification principle. It needs to prove that it's true. Now, that might sound good. You know, when you go buy something, you want them to prove it's true. And yet, the reality is most of us actually live with what we call the falsification principle. In other words, you assume someone's telling the truth until you know they're lying to you. And this is good. Your children do not raise up and everything you say go, well, I don't know, is the stove hot? Now, there are some children who are this way, and they end up burning their hand because they have to go and test everything. But by and large, it's good that we go, you know what? I'm going to implicitly trust you until you give me good reasons not to trust you. If I meet someone brand new, I say, hey, what's your name? And they say, Joe, I don't go, prove it. Where's your birth? Give me your driver's license. I assume 
until you've shown yourself to be an untrustworthy character, when you tell me your name, I ask you where you're from, I believe you. I treat most people, unless they have proven that they're not trustworthy, that they're telling me the truth. And so if you come to the Bible and say, no, every single fact has to be verified, well, how are you going to do that? And we have to back up and go, if every fact has to be verified, what's the first fact that's verified? How do you prove that fact? And then you run into an endless cycle of you really can't prove any history. You can't prove that George Washington was the first president because you have to start with an assumption of truth. And is there any reason to assume that the Bible is telling us truth? And even in this, we have to realize the Bible is concerned about this. As we go through 1 Kings, we'll get to chapter 17 and the famous story of Elijah against the prophets of Baal. And what's the big question? Who is speaking the truth? God does not say, Elijah did not say to the people of Israel, well, I'm going to tell you that I'm speaking for God, so you should just believe me. Don't worry about what anyone else says. Let me give you evidence, he says. We'll set up two altars. And whichever one can be consumed by fire, that will be evidence that that person is God. That person we should listen to. And then the story goes, and we'll look at those details. But the Bible never calls us just to believe facts without giving evidence. And even outside the Bible, there are good reasons to believe this is historically accurate. Scholar Baruch Halper notes, the books of Kings do in fact preserve a very large assortment of accurate information on international affairs. What he's saying is not does it just prove true what it says about Israel. You can see what it says about kings from other nations and find those kings in history. That it's reporting accurate information. To give one specific example, in 1995, there was an archaeological dig at a place called Tel Dan, and there they found an inscription. And the thing that's interesting about this inscription is many skeptics of the Bible, many biblical scholars, so to speak, had said King David actually never existed. Yeah, you can read about this guy in here, but there's no evidence for this king named David. He was made up. And yet then they find this inscription from the 9th century BC before David lived that referred to the dynasty of David. There was archaeological proof supporting what the Bible claims. Now, I'm not claiming every archaeological evidence is clearly proof of the Bible. There are some that we go, well, I don't know what that means. We'd have to look at each one. And yet the point is that to dismiss the Bible as unhistorical is completely false. The fulfillment of prophecy, archaeological evidence, and even the way that Israel told their history, giving both the good and the bad, is showing that their goal was to write true history. And we even see that for kings is now going to go on. And even though it told of Solomon, it's going to tell of their horrible demise. And we begin to see that in chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, our second section, the mostly horrible decline of God's people. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. 
Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And due to this, God will begin to take away the kingdom from Solomon. We could read in chapter, verse 14 of this chapter, a man from Edom named Hadad who arises. And in verse 23, a man named Rezin in Syria who arises. But it's not just these external conflicts. God sends a prophet named Ahijah to a man named Jeroboam and says that he will actually give him the kingdom of ten tribes of Israel. Look down at verse 29 of chapter 11. There it says, And at that time when Jeroboam went out to Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of his new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give it and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Kamash, the god of Moab, and Milcom, keeping the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Now jump down to verse 37. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you, and will build you a sure house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Thus, as God had promised in Deuteronomy, if they will follow him, he'll bless them, as he did for Solomon. But he also promised, and if you abandon me, I will curse you. And Solomon begins to have this happen. Jeroboam is going to rule, and we see this happen because in the next chapter, when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne, he makes a foolish decision. It seems that Solomon, in his older years, started to rule a little bit harshly. And so when he passed the throne to, Re- passed the throne to Rehoboam, leaders came to Rehoboam and said, will you make our burden lighter, lighter than your father had? And Rehoboam listened to his older counselors, and they said, this is good, you should lighten their load. But then he also listened to his younger counselors, and they said, no. You should be harder than your father was. And Rehoboam listened to this foolish counsel of his younger friends. And it then says in chapter 12, verse 20, it then talks about how because of this, the northern tribes, 10 of them left and said, we will have nothing to do with you. So from this point on, there is now 10 tribes in the north called Israel, and their capital is in the city called Samaria. And that's important to realize because as you read the Old Testament, sometimes they'll talk about Samaria. Well, that's code, not code, it's a euphemism for talking about Israel. It would be like saying Washington, D.C. That's a way of referring to where the power is in the U.S. Samaria is the capital of Israel. 
And often when it talks about Israel, it's only talking about those ten northern tribes because Rehoboam, Solomon's son, will continue to rule Judah with the capital of Jerusalem. And yet though God had clearly told Jeroboam, I'm taking the throne from Solomon and giving it to you because of Solomon's sin, look what happens in chapter 12, verses 26 through 28. There it says, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn against them to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And we could read on because Jeroboam also set up priests for these. He also set up festivals and holidays, just like the festivals and holidays they had when they went to worship in Jerusalem. And why does he do all this? Because he knows if I'm not going to lose the kingdom, I have to make false idols. I have to keep the people away from Jerusalem. I have to do this. And we often feel that way. Well, God doesn't really understand. If I don't do this, what I think needs to happen can't succeed. I have to take things into my own hands. He, God just doesn't really understand. And is it really that big a deal? Because look, what did he say? These are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. He's still saying we're worshiping God. We're just worshiping another way. I mean, does it really matter if you call him Jesus or Allah or Krishna? Isn't it just that you believe? Does it really matter what you believe? Well, yes. There is a major difference. And we see in kings and other places that it matters what you believe, not just that you believe. God was clear in the Ten Commandments, and even when they made the golden calf. You know, the, I, the hypocrisy here is amazing. Jeroboam makes the very thing that they were condemned for in Exodus 33. And not just makes the very thing, he makes two of them. And he says the same thing, hey, this is what brought you out of Egypt. So in chapter 14, God curses Jeroboam because of the sin. And Jeroboam's actions will be the constant barometer for the king of Israel. Have your fingers ready. We're going to flip through several verses here. Because there's going to be this refrain. Look at 15, verse 34. Chapter 15, verse 34. It'll refer to a king of Israel. And then it'll say, 15, 34. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam. And in his sin, which he made Israel to sin or flip over. To chapter 16 verses 25 and 26 Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him for he walked in the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat or we could flip over to chapter 22 verse 52 the end of the book chapter 2 verse 52 and it says Ahaziah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Or flip all the way to 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings 13, verse 2. He did what was evil in the side, Lord, and followed the sins of 
Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And we could go on. There's multiple of these references where the kings of Israel are constantly judged. Did you follow this wicked pattern of Jeroboam or did you not? And sadly, the reality is most of the kings of Israel, those are the ten northern tribes, follow Jeroboam in his sin. Now, the nation of Judah does better, and they have more kings who follow God. And yet, sadly, from the time of Solomon until the exile, it's almost a continual decline of God's people. It's a mostly horrible decline. And yet, while there are many wicked kings... God also raises up prophets. The two well-known from these books are Elijah and Elisha. But it's during this time period that the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Micah, all write. So to understand those, you have to understand this history. But one thing we're going to see as we go through this is there is some really weird stuff. Solomon, did we hear that right? He had... 700 wives, 300 concubines. In 1 Kings 17, when a child dies, Elijah stretches his body on the child three times. In 2 Kings, Elisha becomes prophet, and after he becomes prophet, these kids make fun of him, and bears kill 42 kids. Later in 2 Kings, there's this poisonous stew, and they throw some flour on it, and it becomes healthy again? What in the world? I mean, this is some weird stuff. Well, there's really three issues here. And the first issue is that the Bible does not always, we don't always understand how the Bible was written. We often think of the Bible as a moral book trying to give us stories on how to lead moral lives. Yet the Bible is not a running moral commentary. In other words, something will happen And then very rarely will it say, and God thought this was wicked, or, and God thought this was good. It'll just say something. For example, even with Solomon, it didn't say right after this, Solomon sinned. However, it implies it by saying, he's breaking what Deuteronomy 17 says, by showing right after this, this is the thing that led him to sin. So people will go, well, the Bible's saying Solomon's fine to do this. No, it's not. It's saying that's his very downfall to do this. Yes, it did not write a moral judgment. Solomon sinned. But it shows it in other ways. And to understand the Bible, you have to realize it's not going through giving us a moral play-by-play of what they're doing. Second, some of this weirdness is not really an issue if you believe in miracles. If God is all-powerful, if he created the universe, then he can intervene at times in miraculous ways. So, yes, if you have stew on your stovetop and you leave it for two days and if you eat it, you get poisoned, do not throw flour on it and go, well, second kings, they did this and they were fine. God intervened in miraculous ways. And unless he intervenes again, you're probably going to die if you eat that stew. That's not the point. The point is not giving us a cookbook on how to make healthy food. So we have to realize that it's written in unique ways. And third, sometimes we need to realize that what is weird or wrong is just due to being in a different culture. A few weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 9, and I noted then the very faithful biblical preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said in the early 1900s, if I had to spend a lifetime 
with a companion who had one bath a day or with one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter because a man's soul is more important than his skin. Well, this was in a time when they didn't have indoor plumbing. So to take a bath was a big ordeal. So we look back now and go, I would not marry someone who takes one bath a year. That is disgusting. But for that time, probably more people agreed with him. And we have to realize that what is weird then is not weird now. And sometimes what we do now that we think is normal is quite weird. We have to tell people, don't eat your Tide Pods. We pay millions of people, we pay millions of dollars to people to go dress up in clothes, put makeup on, and act. Today and on Thanksgiving, people will have their whole day ruined because young men in tight-fitting clothes didn't chase a piece of leather around a rectangle well enough. We'll go, oh, my days, who cares? It's weird. On Thanksgiving, you'll sit with families and you'll flip through old photos or albums and you'll go, ha, 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 look at what they wore, look at our clothes, and not realize that 20 years from now, we're going to laugh at now. You know, we do weird stuff. And we just can't look at the Bible, oh, they're weird. We are a culture that does abstract, bizarre things. So yes, I'm not denying there are some weird things in here. But if you understand that the Bible is not giving us a moral playbook on every action, that God still intervenes in miraculous ways, and that not everything is weird, it's just a different culture, you can come to understand it. But more than that, we can realize that in all of that, there are timeless principles that come through. Probably about a decade ago, I read St. Augustine's Confessions. And it was amazing to me to read this book written from 1,700 years before me and think, he's writing the exact same thoughts and feelings that I have. How can someone from 1,700 years ago describe me so well? Well, it's because the things that are most important about every person are timeless. It does not matter what culture you're from. We all have longings for relationships, for power, for importance. And they have those same things too. We all want to know, is there a God? How do we relate to him? Has he spoken? And they are going to deal with those things too. Thus we can learn from First and Second Kings. And part of that will be thinking through the decline. And thinking through, well, does that have the final word? And that's our last section a question, is this the end of God's promises and people? Flip over to Second Kings chapter 17. Second Kings 17. Because there, the decline did continue until they seemed to hit bottom. In 17 verse 6, it says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Remember, Samaria is a euphemism for Israel, the ten northern tribes. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halal. So they are taken captive. But there are still the Jews who are living in Judah. Now God is very clear that the nation of Israel, those in Samaria, did not get conquered because they had bad economic plans. It's not because they had poor military strategies or bad politics. They fell because they rebelled against God. Look at verse 21 of chapter 17. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. 
and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. So there it's very clear why were they taken into exile? Their sin. Well, God, as we said earlier, blessed Judah with better kings, and they continue for another 135 years until around 587 B.C. And yet even then, we see that Judah succumbs to idolatry. Flip to chapter 25, and we won't read it for sake of time, but you could read verses 1 through 7, the tell of even Jerusalem falling into captivity. So now, from the northern tip to the southern, from the eastern to the western, All the land of Israel and Judah has been taken. Everyone has been taken into exile except the poorest of the land who they leave there. And notice, though, one thing it says in verse 6 of chapter 25. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah, he's the king, before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. I mean, could a nation be any more humiliated or sink any lower that the whole army is destroyed? The king has all of his children put to death right in front of him, and then they take out his eyes. Just as it looked like everything was perfect with Solomon, it now looks like everything is horrible with Zedekiah. There is no hope, it seems. And yet the book does not end that way because it ends with verses 27 through 30. And in verses 27 through 30, chapter 25, it tells about how the king will later take the next or future king of Judah out of the prison and will then give them a place in that kingdom, give them allowance, and it seems that there is a glimmer of hope. It says, Joseph read earlier in Isaiah 11, in Isaiah 11, God tells of the destruction of Israel and Judah like a great forest being cut down. All that's left is stumps. There's nothing there. The forest is ruined, and yet Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Though everything looks gone, God says there is still hope. There's a glimmer, a flicker of light in the darkness. They and we can take hope that though life may appear dark, that no light may seem to come in, God's light and plan will come forth. Yet this really raises our last question, though, as we wrap up. Can we apply these truths to us? I mean, this is talking to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We're now, many of us, I believe, non-Jewish living after Christ. Can we even apply this to us? Well, we are not the nation of Israel, but Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, who trusts in Christ is a descendant of Abraham. His promises apply to us. Second, Jesus specifically said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Thus, there are truths from these stories That can apply because there is a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
and ultimately there's a continuity because there is one God who has had one plan for all time. And third, we can see continual application to these truths because Paul will tell these stories, and then in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he says, now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction. He writes that to Jew and Gentile saying, the Old Testament was written for our instruction, that we might know how to live. And yet if we go through First and Second Kings and only do things like character studies or only focus on the morality of each person, then we're going to miss the main character in First and Second Kings. And that is God. They're not just examples of how to live, though they are that, but more importantly, they're pictures of how we can know and worship God. You know, the Bible is not, again, a moral book in the sense of giving us a play-by-play morality. So it doesn't matter that Solomon fell. That's not an issue because our hope was never in Solomon. Uh, the Bible is not about humans reaching up to God. Oh, another human failed. Let's get another human leader so we can reach up to God and get him. The Bible is about God reaching down to us. And Kings is going to show us over and over that no human king can achieve what we need. We need the king of kings to come. We sang earlier the song, Do We Feel This World Is Broken? We do. You hear that song talking about we need someone to come, and Kings is also showing we need someone, but it's not going to be a Solomon. He might bring great peace. He might bring wonderful prosperity. He might bring prominence, but it'll end. What we need is someone to get to the root of our problem, our sin. And only the king of kings, one greater than Solomon, Jesus, can do that. So yes, there will be many twists and turns as we go through kings, but our hope is found not in any one of the kings on these pages and kings, but the king of kings who will come after them. We will see that though we and earthly kings fail to keep our promises, God is faithful and always keeps his word. So we've done a big picture look at kings. We've delved into some important questions. Can we even trust this? Is it even historical? What about all that weird stuff they do? How do we even apply this to us? And yet I want to say for some, you're still caught in your skeptical questions, asking all these things, And yet you can be so caught in not being caught that you never come to see the truth, that you never believe. C.S. Lewis captures this beautifully in his book, The Last Battle. We'll end with this illustration because in it, a group of dwarves have been deceived into thinking a certain character is speaking for God. And they're deceived and then they later realize it. And then they say, we're never going to be taken in again. And then the Christ figure in the story, Aslan comes and he seeks to help them. And it says, And Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarves' knees pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedy enough, but it was clear they couldn't eat it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking things you could find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he got a good old bite of an old turnip. And a third said he found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised their golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, 
fancy drinking water out of a trough that a donkey drank out of. Never thought we'd come to this. But soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their wounds and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in their prison. And they're so afraid of being taken in that they can't be taken out. Yes, you should ask penetrating, deep questions. Because the Bible is calling for your total loyalty Don't give that away blindly, but neither be so stuck in so many questions that you can't see the truth of the richness being set before you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we begin this new series, we ask that you would help us to see past the king on earth, to see you, the king of kings. Lord, as we look at the brokenness of this world, we know it will only be fixed through you. And we thank you that your son has come and purchased that fixing. And he will come again where we shall then fully enjoy this world being made new. It's in his name we pray. Amen.